Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. This week, I have Elliot Grasso here with me to talk about Francis Bacon's Novum Organum. Welcome, Elliot. Good evening, Gil. Glad to be here. So, our last podcast episode, I had Charlie on to talk about the science curriculum in general. And we recorded that during the summer, and I thought maybe we would get to more general things that maybe we could talk about during the summer, and that ended up not happening with all of the things that we were doing this summer. But we are back, and the year has started, and students are reading great books again. And so what we need to do, I think, here at the beginning of our second season Mm our second year of doing this podcast is we need to orient folks to where we are as we're approaching Francis Bacon. We were talking about the ancient world last season. So give us a general picture of where we are in history. What are the big events that are happening in the world? Just give people some perspective and then narrow in on Francis Bacon for us. Um, We're talking about the development of this thing called the scientific revolution, which was in a nutshell a sloughing off of inherited Aristotelian and Roman Catholic ideas and traditions to some extent and opening the door to propose new ideas and new theories and new methods and new ways of knowing and, and things of this sort. So Bacon lived from 1561 to 1626. So in 1561, the Roman Catholic Church was still responding to the Reformation with the Counter-Reformation. And by 1626, we're fully moving into the scientific revolution. So a little more context, Bacon was born in 1561, Galileo was born in 1564, though Galileo outlived Bacon by a good decade and a half, maybe it was a sunshine and tomato sauce, we don't know for (laughs) sure. And Rene Descartes, the French philosopher, mathematician, theorist, lived from 1596 to 1650. So there's some there's some overlap in some of these figures. So the Reformation is taking place all over Europe. Mm-hmm. It starts with Martin Luther, which is in Germany, or what we know of as Germany today. Holy Roman Empire, we could um, say. We're very used to thinking of Germany as the discrete mm-hmm country nation on the map but nation states are new particularly in europe in the form they are today germany at this time is a bunch of little i guess we call them principalities Mm -hmm. they are under the jurisdiction of the holy roman emperor as you're saying but a spanish king might be also the duke of some little portion of germany and some Norwegian, they might not actually be a king, but they'd be the duke of such and such a place, but also the duke of some other place in Germany. So there's all of these little bits that are divided up mm-hmm. all over. But this this reformed idea that Martin Luther has about, or Protestantism, I guess we could say, sweeps through that area and starts to make its way throughout all of Europe. And Francis Bacon is English, and the English Reformation involved famously Henry VIII Mm -hmm. wanting a divorce from his then-wife, and because he could not secure said divorce from the Pope, he went ahead and decided that he was the head of the English church, Mm -hmm. and that had consequences for his children, who went back and forth between being Catholic and Protestant. Where is Francis Bacon in the midst of that transition? Yeah, that's a great question. So you have Henry VIII, who is followed by his son Edward, who isn't on the throne very long. Mm -hmm. Then you have Mary I, Mm -hmm. who reigns from 1553 to 58, not very long again. Mm -hmm. They're scrambling to find the next closest relative. It Mm -hmm. turns out to be Elizabeth I. Mm Um, so Bacon is born in, in 1561 
and Mary the first dies in 1558. Mm-hmm. So he's just a couple years old when yeah. Queen Elizabeth takes the throne. Mm-hmm. And so he's contemporary with Shakespeare and other luminaries of the late 16th yeah, century yeah. in England. Yeah. And then we get the transition to James the first right around the turn of the century. So he's a little bit in, in Bacon was actually the attorney general to James the first for a period of time. So he's, Primarily in the under the reign of Elizabeth I and James I. Yeah, the last Tudors and early Stuarts. James I famously made the King James. Yes, Bible. that King so. James. Yeah. Yep. Okay, you mentioned that there is a dislike of Aristotelianism. Yes. Or Aristotelian science. Yes. And you were saying that in the same breath as the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. What was the connection? between the Catholic Church and Aristotelianism at this time, just to refresh everybody's sort of thinking about that. Sure. So Aristotle was a Greek philosopher who lived from 384 to 322 BC. His teachings were adapted and used next, most largely after Greece, in the Arabian Peninsula, where the Muslims used his work on math and the natural sciences to great effect. From there, Aristotle traveled to Spain and then up to France, where he was adopted as part of the curriculum at the University of Paris in the 13th century. Aristotle was, quote-unquote, baptized by Thomas Aquinas when Aquinas arguably very successfully merged Aristotelianism, meaning he's taking Aristotle's categories and definitions, things like substance, and using them to describe aspects of the Christian faith. And so Aristotle becomes integrated with Western Christendom, the Roman Catholic Church's teachings, not just about the natural world, which is Aristotle's primary interest. Aristotle was not so much a theologian at all as he was a natural scientist and researcher. But what uh, Aquinas achieved was a a synthesis and an application of Aristotle's work where suddenly it was like, oh, okay, we're going to talk about this theological thing the way Aristotle is talking about it. And we're going to borrow as much as we can. Yeah. So do you think that the distaste that Protestants might have had for Aristotelian science stemmed more from their dislike of Catholicism or because they genuinely had a new scientific thing going on? That is a really interesting question, Gil. Luther was a deadly faithful Catholic, the most faithful you could find probably Uh in Europe. So I wonder if their dislike of Aristotle was not so much what Aristotle was talking about, but the way that he was administered Uh in the classroom and things Uh of that sort. I ran across the charter to Trinity College, Cambridge, which Bacon entered on April 5th, 1573, at the tender age of 12. (laughs) And this charter reads... Quote, all students and undergraduates should lay aside their various authors and only follow Aristotle and those that defend him. <laughs> the charter also forbade, quote, all sterile and inane questions departing or disagreeing from ancient and true philosophy, end quote. So, I mean, I can imagine being a, a, a preteen or a teenager and hearing that and experiencing, well, we know you have questions, but just so you know, these questions have already been answered. And uh-huh. so your job is to chew up and digest the answers that we feed to you. And there'll be no right. questions asked beyond that. I can imagine a, a rebellious human not doing well with that. Right. Well, it would be interesting to know what they thought of as sterile and inane questions. That's a good... That it depends. But yes, I mean, it is certainly true of younger people that they don't necessarily have the institutional big picture. There can be a authoritarian approach to education where you're not allowing for questioning, but it would be interesting. How bad was it really? Sure. <laughs> In oh, comparison. Sure, sure. So... Leaving that question aside as a matter of history, what can we say about how Bacon felt about that question? Well, it seems to me that, I mean, one of the works that was bread and butter for the late medieval university curriculum was called the Organon, which was a collection of Aristotle's works translated into Latin. And there were six independent works in the Organon, and they were number one categories 
Number two, on interpretation. Number three, prior analytics. Number four, posterior analytics. Number five, topics. And sixth and finally, sophistical refutations. So organon means instrument. Yeah. And so within these six works, the student is getting very familiar with incredibly dense, pithy, and very well conceptualized approaches to language and the natural world and argumentation and things of this yeah. sort, grammar, how, rhetoric, and logic. And how your mind organizes things possibly, you know. Absolutely. The, that's what those issues, prior and post-analytics, right? What are we doing before we come to actually analyze, you know, what's actually happening sure. in our minds before we actually come to analyze a problem and what's happening after we've received data Sure. So to speak. So, I mean, to your question about how did Bacon respond to it, I mean, novum organum means a new instrument or the new instrument. Right. So I think there's plenty in how he talks about it in the front end of novum organum where he's basically saying, you know, I don't think that I'm any smarter than these ancients who are talking about stuff, but I am going at it from a different perspective. So uh -huh. he, he goes to great lengths, I think, earnestly to, to pay respect and say, you know, this is incredible work that they did, but they didn't have the instruments that we now have, uh -huh. things like the telescope. He doesn't mention the telescope specifically, but the extent to which man-made instruments can enhance man's grasp, yeah. apperceptions, and command of the natural world. He's like, well, we just have different stuff to work with. Yeah. So we have this new instrument to help us work with those yeah. things effectively. Well, I would like to set that to the side for a moment because sure, I sure. absolutely want to talk about, particularly given the the podcast we just did with Charlie mm. and the discussion of how skill is involved in even just doing science and does having a telescope mean that I can learn fundamentally new stuff? People might be able to anticipate that if they remember what happened in the Charlie episode. But I just want to get a little bit more of his biography. So he enters college at the age of 12. Now, to be fair, college in England, particularly back in those days, is not the same thing as we think of. Because when we think of college, we think of 18-year-olds going to get a major. Yes. And yes, that wasn't yes. exactly what was happening at colleges in England. Mm -hmm. Right. So he may be precocious, but he's not six years precocious. He's <laughs> four years precocious or something like that. That's fair enough. But in any case, so he, he finishes college. He has this relationship. We surmise with this idea of Aristotle being foremost what what turn does his career take after that? Let's just get his biography out of the way and then... Well, sure. Well, I mean, when in 1733, Voltaire, the French philosopher, introduces him, you know, posthumously as the father of the scientific method and the father of empiricism, I mean, his biography reads very much more like a political scientist than a natural scientist. Uh -huh. So, I mean, he was elected to parliament when he was 23 years old. He served and worked under King James I. He was also a legal counselor to his predecessor, Elizabeth I. His friends included the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes. So he did a lot of government work in the English state. And he wrote Novum Organum in Latin, hoping that people would read it. Elizabeth I wasn't too keen on it because when you're an unmarried Protestant queen, um, you aren't looking to upset many more apple carts than you right, need to. Right. And pointing at Aristotle or the inheritance of the university system and saying, you know, yeah. this is really great, but time to do something new. Yes. Uh, apparently, she wasn't super excited about yes. that. Elizabeth was famously a extreme middle person, right? Yes, if you she got was an extreme too moderate. Catholic, she'd come after you. But if you got too Protestant, she'd come after She wanted everything to stay. Let's just, let's not be fighting so much. Let's keep everything in the middle so that we don't have to be fighting so much. Totally. So one should not think of this, this, the father of the scientific method as someone with goggles and surrounded by beakers doing experiments on, you know, random things all the time. I mean, he, he did die contracting pneumonia, just trying to discover if ice could properly preserve meat. Okay. So I mean, he did some practical experiments of, of that nature, but it... 
think of him mostly as a politician who right, wrote on right. science. Well, so the reason why this would be attached is because he would have had resources and oh, free time for much of Western history. It's the aristocratic folks who spend their time thinking about philosophy and science and these sorts of questions because they have the resources to not have to work and do this thing. Sure. So the fact that he was a politician meant that he was in a certain station, which afforded him the ability to be able to worry about science and so forth. Okay. So let's return to the Nova Morganum, unless you have any other little tidbits that you think are worth pointing out. No, no, that's good. Okay. So coming back to this Nova Morganum, the new instrument, we have uh, a new way to do science that Aristotle didn't have. And as you explained, the sorts of instruments that he has in mind are things like the telescope and I don't know, thermometers, the equipment Mm -hmm. that you would use in a lab, for instance, as a way to gather finer data. Is that right? Sure. I mean, I don't know how literally he intended the term instrument, as it were. I mean, there are certainly new instruments. So when he's writing this in 1620, Europe is in the middle of a humongous astronomical paradigm shift. I mean, quite literally. So Copernicus publishes on the heavenly bodies in Mm -hmm. 1543. Newton is going to publish his Principia in 1689. So 1620, which is when Bacon writes this thing, is is in the middle of this huge paradigm shift. Europe is willing to consider that maybe the Earth is not the center of the solar system. Mm -hmm. Maybe all the things that are rotating around us, these planets, these wanderers, maybe they're not nested in perfectly spherical, crystalline spheres. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, if humanity is not the physical center of the material world, then what is the significance of humanity in the material world? Right. So he's writing into this, and the, and the new tools that he's proposing are, okay, well, for such a long time, we have received, accepted, approved, validated the stuff that Aristotle is saying, and which a lot of which Copernicus overturns uh-huh. in his theoretic, what he calls a theoretical work about heliocentrism. And so, well, what if instead of just receiving maxims about the heavens are spherically perfect because mm-hmm. the sphere is the most perfect shape? And right. God made everything perfect. Well, what if we set that on the side for a second and, and did lots and lots and lots of experiments uh-huh. and then collected lots and lots and lots of data? And instead of leaping from, hmm, this I noticed that circles have no beginning and no end. Therefore, the heavens must be spherical because that's perfect. He's saying, well, what, what if we build up a little bit more capital in between the observation and the conclusion right. through experimentation? I see. So the instrument then that he's talking about is experimentation. Lots of it. Yes. Yeah. So if we would characterize Aristotle's method, when philosophers talk about these sorts of things, the term they would use is rationalist. You have a particular, you have a particular piece of information or a particular premise And then you use that premise to reason your way to what the case might be. Yes. So Aristotle's conception that the sphere is the most perfect shape informed his picture of the universe because everything outside of Earth's area is perfect, unlike Earth, Mm -hmm. that substance, that stuff out there must be spherical. Yeah. So without actually going and looking at the thing, we've derived what must be the case from certain premises that we take for granted. Sure. Sure. And I mean, to fill out, to give Aristotle a little, a little bit more credit as well as an empiricist. So, I mean, you know, when we drop stuff, it goes down when we throw it up, it goes up and then it starts. So starts to go down. So in his mind, He develops a physics that is in play for many centuries Mm -hmm. that 
the natural motion of falling bodies, it's up or down. Mm -hmm. But there's also this spherical motion that happens up in the heavens, right? right. Things rotate in very regular right. intervals, and the sun makes its arc across the sky. So, I mean, Aristotle is using observation as well mm -hmm. to explain, and rightly or wrongly explain, to point at, say, like, this thing goes up and down, that thing up in the sky goes around and around. Something is different about that. Must be spherical because the Greeks also had this concept of beauty in play. Whereas right. a circle, a perfect circle, is uniformly symmetrical as long as you cut mm -hmm. it through the center. So you have this notion of beauty at play with the symmetry and the perfection. You get the sphere and all these Greek ideas come to bear on how we are allowed to conclude stuff. So Bacon's new instrument then is let's not necessarily hold any of those old Greek premises mm -hmm. as givens and see if we can't come up with correct premises. And describe where things have gone off the rails. He calls these the idols. And there are four of them. There's the idol of the tribe, which is basically... Our human nature is limited in perceiving various sorts of things, so that's that's going to get in the way. The second is the idol of the den, which is personal quirks. Imagine like the den, your home where you grew up, your right. background might cause you to interpret or see things in a particular way, and you may not realize how much it's coming to bear on your interpretation. Mm -hmm. The third is the idol of the market, which has to do with how we talk about things and how that governs how we see things. Mm -hmm. So when we walk outside at dawn, we talk about a sunrise. Right. But anyone who believes in heliocentrism knows that the sun isn't rising. Right. For example, it's just, why, what a nice earth turning right. today, which right. nobody says, but which is right. allegedly the case. And then there's the fourth, which is the idol of the theater, which he th talks about as um, performance of inherited matters of discourse, um, inherited ideologies about how we're allowed to talk about things, what's common currency in describing various sorts of things. So like, for example... Is that the Overton window in our... Is that the term we would use in our discourse now? Yeah, it sort could be. Like it's, the Overton window is a political science concept that's basically the acceptable things to talk about. Yeah, and pursuant to that, how to talk about them. Sure. So it's like sure. another one could be like climate change. Yeah. There's a set of discourses about right. climate change. The fact that we call the phenomena climate change. Yes. It could be called something else. Sometimes it is called global warming, for instance. Sure, sure. And so the particular set of words or concepts that get handed to us by, he calls it the theater. I guess we're doing... <laughs> In the <laughs> theater of discourse. Yeah. So there's a bunch of different ways that we could talk about this, but... The groove that we find ourselves in is talking about it in this particular way, and that's going to bias us towards. Yes, it makes sense, given that he's attended a late medieval university, that there are ways that we are allowed and encouraged to talk about various sorts of things. And he's wondering, does that stifle our ability to see or our willingness to look again? given all these things. So the four idols he points at, idol of the tribe, human nature, number two, idol of the den, personal quirks, idol number three, idol of the market, dealing with language, and idol of the theater, number four, these performed discourses and ideologies. So just to clarify, when he says idol of the tribe, sometimes in our day's political discourse, we talk about tribalism, mm. and that's which political party are you part of? Or maybe we're talking about something more specific, but he doesn't mean that. He means as humans, as a species. So we might say the idol of the species, since we're human, we have to look at things in a particular way. Sure. Is that the thing that he's talking about? Or is it some combination of those two things? I think he's talking about what in today's terms we would talk, we would think about maybe as, as confirmation bias. Okay. Or our inclination to overgeneralize or overextend um, particulars into into universals. One of the things that has been observed about human beings is we don't do exponentials well. We actually have to calculate exponentials. We're very, we're very bad at guesstimating when you start using exponentials. Hmm. For whatever reason, that seems to be a, an observable quirk about humans is that we're bad at that. And so... That's the thing he's talking about is just you have certain 
by dint of being a human, you have certain tendencies because you're like a linguistic being and because it's that thing, right? We like overgeneralization. There's, well, we li- I mean, we like to be right. Yeah. So as soon as I yeah. feel right, then I'm done looking. Right. Thing. He's like, well, not necessarily. You know. Don't, so that does have. So that does seem to have a little bit of a connection to our idea of tribalism. Yeah. But it's not necessarily connecting that to a specific group. It's just saying like humans do this mm-hmm. all the time. Sure. So he brings up these idols and he wants to do away with them or become conscious that they're operative and that we need to be careful. What is identifying these idols do for his method? That's a really great question. It seems to me because I don't find anything in what he's writing that actually suggests that he thinks they can be eliminated. I'm inclined to read him as saying these are some pitfalls to watch out for as you're peeling yourself away from Aristotelianism as the old instrument, the organon, and thinking independently about what are my senses giving me and how do I test and repeat and things of that sort. I see. I see. So these are these are just things to be aware of and check yourself on as you're trying to do this new science, aware that you're going to have habits, maybe even more ingrained things than habits that are tripping you up as you're trying to do. Yeah, no, for sure. I'll add this, if I may quote, he's got some interesting things to say about human nature. Novum Organum is written in aphorisms. So it's not one long book where all the thoughts are connected in nice, neat syllogisms and there's a very clear flow. He's writing almost bullet points about certain ideas that he wants us to think about. And so in Aphorism 129, he writes, quote, It will, perhaps, be as well to distinguish three species and degrees of ambition. He's talking about human nature. First, that men who are anxious to enlarge their own power in their country which is, which is a vulgar and degenerate kind. Next, that men who strive to enlarge the power and empire of their country over mankind, which is more dignified but not less covetous, but if one were to endeavor to, thirdly, renew and enlarge the power and empire of mankind in general over the universe, such ambition, if it may be so termed, is both more sound and more noble than the other two. So there's some kinds of ambition that he's like, these are, this is a personal power grab and, and that's bad. But if you're going to renew and enlarge the power of your empire and mankind in general using this research and methodology, uh-huh. that would be, that would be okay. I see. So I guess we can get to this question now because often in surveys of Western civilization, <clears throat> It's not uncommon to find Bacon cast as a villain in the narrative of what's going on. Because he's saying if the whole empire of humankind is taking over the universe, then that can end up being pretty sinister. Now, your explanation seems to say if your focus is on benefiting all of humanity, then that's not the same as power that's seeking to just make your country better speculate with me for for a moment (laughs) oh that's a tough question let me actually back up let me talk a little bit about what is the villainy one the most villainous version of this bacon has a certain vision of the world that gets implemented through the course of Western civilization, which is really bad, that leads to things like Nazi Germany and the atom bomb and and so on. And he could have foreseen that coming and he wanted that coming. That's one option. Hmm. Another option is that he didn't know what would happen if you started doing this new science and he thought it was all going to be hunky-dory and he forgot about the essential evil of human nature or something like that. And in instituting this program, he didn't see where it would go, but it ultimately ended up leading to Nazi Germany. (laughs) Right. Hmm. The third option is he wasn't talking about that at all. 
And we, in hindsight, look back at particularly the word empire, which Mm. strikes us differently, possibly, than it did at the time that he was writing. And we go, oh, yes, he was into bad stuff. So there's three possibilities there. He had a certain vision and he successfully implemented that vision and it was bad. He had a program and he didn't have a vision for where that would end up. Mm -hmm. And so it just ended up not working out and it ended up being bad or he wasn't thinking about that at all. So those are the three options as I see it. But let me paint a better picture of that villainy because I think that might be helpful in our discussion. So C.S. Lewis writes his space trilogy. They're science fiction stories. And in the first book, which is called Out of the Silent Planet, we meet the main character whose name is Ransom, and he gets kidnapped, and he's taken to what turns out to be Mars. And the pivotal scene in that book, spoilers, is Ransom is a linguist, so he learns the Martian language, and he is accompanying these two evil men who are wanting to take over Mars. And the final scene is Ransom is acting as a translator for the evil men to the Martians. Mm. And the plan of the evil men is, well, we have to take over this planet so that we can use its resources. And then once we've exhausted those, we need to move on to the next planet. And then basically we need to do whatever we can do to be able to overtake the entire universe because we need to continue existing. (laughs) And so we need to move on and on and on. And the, the Martians... And I think in particular, there's an angel who is Mars himself is like, but why? Why do you need to keep existing? (laughs) Sometimes God's purpose is for things to pass away. Sometimes, yeah. And there's a grasping that seems to be a chief concern of the Bible that Lewis is trying to capture Mm -hmm. with these evil men. It's not necessarily like the wonder of planets and going plate ransom finds all of this wonder in these new horizons, these new places and the new languages and all of that. But it's that grasping after what hasn't been given to you mm-hmm. that C.S. Lewis is trying to critique. Right? A Promethean situation. Uh, the final book in his series is called that hideous strength, which is named after a poem, which is talking about the tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is, look, we can reach to the heavens. It's that same grasping attitude. Mm -hmm. And we see that Bacon is very interested in having power over nature. Now, power over nature, we have certain associations with that phrasing in our day and age. And the question is, did he mean it in that grasping way? Of the villainy, which, by the way, is, Lewis would argue, at the heart of Mm. a Nazi Germany. We will control the world and make it into our own image. Mm -hmm. So, the question is, when Bacon uses this language, does he have that end in view? Does he not see where that project would lead? Or is he not even talking about that at all? If I could properly frame the question, I think that's the question to go. And maybe we don't have the full answer, but let's think a little bit about that. Sure. Give me just one second to locate a quote. This is a quote where he talks about the point of science being to give man riches. Bacon sees three purposes for science. One is to endow human life with new inventions and riches. Secondly, in Aphorism 124, he says, found a real model of the world. And third, in aphorism 129, he says what I had just read, renew and enlarge the power and empire of mankind in general over the universe. So the first time I read Bacon, he was very much a villain off the rails in my mind. Having reread him, I'm wanting to be as charitable as humanly possible to him. I'm trying to think about what it's like to be writing in the 1620s uh-huh. after there's been a horrific amount of religious warfare. And, <laughs> Absolutely. and by 1620, the 30 years war is only two years old. 
Right. So he's watching Protestants and Catholics slay each other in droves in the Holy Roman Empire in 1620. This war started in 1618. Right. So on one level, I can see how a critic would say, this is the door opener to our, our modern ills and our modern overreaching. And that's a valid assertion. I mean, we could look yeah. at it like that. We would have a problem, I think, if we look at, say, the Roman Empire, in which there's way more overreaching than he's even capable of. Right. So overreaching, it's been happening a while. So <laughs> to point, point the finger at Bacon and say, you started this overreaching problem, we would have to look at more examples, I think, to be honest. It seems to me that what he is up to is he wants to make sure that people have the opportunity to explore and think independently of received syllogisms. Right. That is a really big deal to him. Yeah. And if we do this, he doesn't say how many experience, experiments you need to do or how much data you need. To, all these qualifiers that in my mind are, well, how do you know when you've done enough right. to be able to say something general? Well, that's not his project. It's not yeah. his project. Yeah. It's We should feel like it's okay to do experiments and, and that thing. And these new instruments actually are going to enhance and raise the ceilings on man's limitations. Now, that that I, I find very interesting and right. have questions about. Yeah. But that's my take in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so easy when you read stuff to make things absolute. It's actually really difficult. Part of what we believe here at Gutenberg about what we owe the author when we're reading their book is to get inside their head and go, okay, what are you actually talking about? And it's very easy to take absolute terms and go, okay, that's all bad. You're either a good guy or you're a bad guy. And you're talking about the empire taking over the universe. We know that's bad from Star Wars. So, <laughs> right, right. Some of the difficulty we're running into categorically saying one way or another, it probably merits more study. But for instance, let's take this idea that the instruments that we have will allow the ceiling to be higher, right? Sure. Now that could be <clears throat> sinister in the way, you know, we have a trope of the mad scientist, right? Mm -hmm. Who's reaching further you know, why did you make dinosaurs? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> who thought this was a good idea, right? Are you that's, citing Jurassic Park? I'm in this citing bacon? Jurassic Park, okay, right? Yes. Good. So Excellent. Classic. Yeah. That's a very easy option for us to go to. But for instance, when I was talking to Charlie about the science curriculum in general, sometimes in order to form that picture of reality, it's helpful to have more resources. The example that I gave is I don't want to read all of. Thomas Jefferson's correspondence. But in order to even do that project, you would actually have to have his correspondence, which requires somebody to preserve it. And in a similar vein, when you're doing science, like having the Hadron Collider allows you to perform experiments and gain data that you might not otherwise have. Now, the thing that we said in that talk with Charlie hmm. was that the important thing is that you're interested in finding truth. Sure. If you had the Hadron Collider and you weren't interested in truth anymore, it comes back to the thing you were saying, which is, okay, so how many experiments are enough now? So there has to be this objective of furthering at least the truth project, which is his second point, in order for that to be worthwhile. But if you don't have a Hadron Collider, you can't do that thing. And we've gotten more and more sophisticated tools that allows us to do more and more of those kinds of things. So the fact that we have that does mean that we can actually understand more <laughs> than we didn't have. Always with the understanding that there is still this skilled, truth-interested stance that you have to have in order for that to work. The instruments themselves are not going to do the thing for you, but... There is a benign version of mm. this where having better resources means I can look a little bit further. Make human life a little bit more bearable. Right. I mean, I, I, right. I agree with what you're saying about the biblical picture. I mean, there's certainly an extent to which man should not be overreaching what he is not intended to overreach. And I mean, if we could say one thing about the Enlightenment, 
its ploy to eliminate suffering has been a mixed blessing. Right. Number one, because it's not possible, which makes things harder. But number two, there's an extent to which suffering has beneficial effects, even right. though to undergo it is very difficult. Right. Well, there's a very benign approach to even the riches and inventions thing, right? We really appreciate that more people don't die all the time because of air conditioning, for instance. You know, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not outside in the rain shivering in the cold. Right. And right. Have this. Uh, so there is a way look at bacon where each of these statements you go, OK, but that could be benign. Right. It's not necessarily sinister in that way. Even the one that has to do with expanding the empire, <clears throat> because we live in a time where until the last few years, you know, there was not war going on at the scale that it had happened sure. in the rest of the world. The European powers basically after the Reformation are just constantly at war with each other. They had been before then as well, but they get more and more destructive as things go on. But we have lived in a time, particularly because we live in the United States, we've lived in a time where world powers have not competed in the way that they did mm -hmm. in his day. And for us, when we start talking about the empire taking over the universe and, you know, we're thinking in sci-fi, you know, sure, take sure, over sure. the next planet and then the next one and then the next one until we try to outrun entropy. Yeah. That's that very grasping thing. But if you're living in the context in which Bacon was writing... I mean, it's totally possible for somebody to grasp even in that context, but he was also looking out at the destruction and going, it'd be great if this stopped. No, oh, for sure. For sure. Well, I mean, I would be the first to acknowledge that totalitarianism is a terrible temptation that many have availed themselves of. But to just bring another perspective into the room would be Dante's perspective. So Dante's perspective, writing in the, the 1200s, 1300s, is like, well, the Roman Empire was a great thing. Why? Because in Dante's day, Florence was being torn to shreds by political factions. Uh -huh. What an empire is ruled by one person, hopefully a really good just person, but right. one person right. in which justice has the maximum capacity or possibility to actually be implemented. Yeah. Whereas you look at the Holy Roman Empire tearing itself apart during the religious wars, I mean, that's very much like 14th century Florence. Right. We can't even do basic things because we can't get along in the streets. Right. So, you know, it may be the case that more study is required and we'd have to look at other things that Bacon says to get more of a picture of how is he thinking this works. The reason why it would require more is because it's somewhat ambiguous. On the one hand... He's very interested in the instruments, but given our context, some of the ways that he's going about talking stuff just strike us as pretty sinister. And it would require a little bit of care and looking at how he thinks about power, for instance, more generally, to get some picture of what would that do. You know, Hobbes, which we may talk about sometime soon. He was a friend of Hobbes. He was a friend of Hobbes. But Hobbes is, he writes Leviathan, which another, it very often cast as a villain in the trajectory of Western civilization. But he is living, he's living during the English Civil War. Oh, and the chaos that ensues, the context ends up being different. We want to look back at these philosophers and pretend that they're heads in jars or words, just words in books, and they weren't living, breathing people walking around in the chaos they were living in. And we're like, oh, you know, he had air conditioning <laughs> and all of the other things that we have. And so obviously, if you say this, that must mean that you're evil and that's not fair to him to take that stance. That doesn't mean that we can't critique him, what he's saying, or that we can even evaluate his moral system in general, but we need to be careful that we're not changing what an author says into what we would mean if we used his words when we said those things. Sure. What would be more natural than people living in a democratic republic to look at the absolutist or the imperial and say, how could you possibly want that? Right. Obviously, this is superior. Right, right. 
it's sometimes tricky to talk about some of these figures because how much we take for granted being part of a democratic republic versus not the badness of the monarchy, but the badness of the alternative to the monarchy. (laughs) You know, there are some phases in history where circumstances are such and the violence that would erupt politically is such that you would rather have the monarch than have whatever the alternative were. So it, it, I, I mean, if the heart of bacon is saying like, don't, take the premises for granted. We should feel okay to ask questions here. That is a largely positive thing, if nothing else. To say that in the pursuit of knowledge, in the pursuit of making life better, ostensibly, we don't have to go with what what people have always thought. Sure, sure. It, it seems like we need to keep being reminded of it. It's not like no one had ever thought this before. No, no, but, of course not. Well, I mean, I think... One of the things that strikes me about Bacon as well, I mean, he's saying do lots of experiments, make lots of observations and things like that. I mean, part of me wonders what he thought of a Ptolemy and a Copernicus, right? They're seeing the very same thing. They're making tons and tons of notations. They're doing the homework. They're observing it. It's not exactly something you can test, what the sun is going to do. I mean, you can predict, but does does a prediction count as a test? I don't know. So part of me wonders, was that just so rare that it must have been rare enough for him to to point it out as as a novelty, as a feature of this new instrument? But part of me wonders what he thought about the ancients. Did he think they were so blind as to what was going on around them that they weren't taking in huge amounts of empirical data by existing and by thinking. I know that existing is and thinking is certainly different from running experiments repeatedly and doing that thing, but I don't have an answer to that question, but I wonder it as I read him. So he could be totally benign and he could have a very positive project. He could be talking about air conditioning and it'd be nice (laughs) to have a Hadron Collider if we're doing right. Like let's take for a moment that that's the case, right? He could still be wrong Mm-hmm. about his scientific method. Sure. So we talked in the last podcast with Charlie about Polanyi and mm. about this idea of you need to be able fundamentally to make judgments about paradigms, mm. not collect facts. Mm-hmm. So given that, and, and you're familiar with Polanyi yes. because he's... <laughs> widely read around here. How does Bacon stack up in his picture of what we're doing when we do science to the Polanyan view? Because on the one hand, being like, we should feel free to ask different questions, that feels very open and feels like good science. On the other hand, this idea of let's just collect data, where's the actual judgment happening there? So where do you think Bacon stacks up in the grand picture of being a good scientist? Well, let me, um, let me answer that by starting with a quote. This is from Aphorism 61. And this translation is pulled from the Hutchins translation in the, the Great Book series is on page 113. And the quote from Bacon is in the English translation, quote, For as in the drawing of a straight line or accurate circle by the hand, Much depends on its steadiness and practice, that the hand's steadiness and practice. But if a ruler or compass be employed, there is little occasion for either. So it is with our method. So what I take from that is primarily this method is not about introducing new skills. Mm -hmm. It's mostly about introducing new instruments And removing, again, I don't want to call it too early here, but it seems to me like he's saying, the great thing about what I'm saying is that instruments remove the need to make the kinds of judgments that we were making before that got us in this respectable, luxurious, but limited ancient box, right? as it were. Well, and I think given the science curriculum, that's just a misunderstanding. Maybe it's fair given where he is in terms of the timeline, you know, oh, we could just remove judgment from the picture. But 
our contention with the science curriculum is right, when sure. you do that, you stop doing science at all. Well, I mean, this this comes up in the idols. Yeah. So, I mean, the things about the idol of the den, the personal quirks, the idea that my personal background, I should really check that at the door before I do all my observing because that could have a negative or tinted impact mm -hmm. or could tint the impact of what I observe or tint my observations. I think that that's very interesting and something to really pay attention to because I think in a lot of ways, this is one of the greatest challenges that has persisted through research into the 21st century. Number one, that those observations can be checked at the door. Uh -huh. And number two, that it's actually better to check them at the door. Right. I mean, who would you want to take advice on goat milking from? Someone who has been milking goats since they were five years old or someone who has a degree in goat milking but never seen a goat? Right. Right. So at the level of, and personal experience isn't a surefire way to make sure that you get it right, right. necessarily. That's not true either. Right. But the extent to which he's advocating for tools replacing human judgment, I think is extremely tricky. I mean, if I think about the Catholic Church's critique of Galileo, for example, their critique was when he saw the craters on the moon, how do you know those aren't an artifact of your instrument? And I think that's a valid question. That's a very interesting question. Right. How is it that you would respond to something like, this is not an artifact of my instrument, but I know it's there? Right. Well, and that's one of the problems that plagues quantum mechanics, for instance, is the, the size of things that we want to look at when we look at those sorts of physical objects. They're so small that even to, for instance, hit them with light so that we could observe them alters them. Sure, right? sure, sure. So the problem that the Catholic Church might raise with Galileo is, you know, more of a problem that's taken seriously now. So the idea that you're going to remove judgment from the system, in our view as an institution, you just can't do it. If human beings are doing science, then you have to have human judgment in the mix. Yeah, as soon as you're brokering in meanings, you're brokering in minds. Right, right. And the question then, I guess, to point Bacon one direction or the other, is, is this a naivete because we've never had the benefit of such sophisticated instruments before? <laughs> Because the first time it occurs to somebody, wouldn't it be great if we could get the biases out of there, <laughs> right? If they're steering us in the wrong direction, sure. You know. But I mean, to answer your question about paradigms from just a moment ago, it seems to me like the scholastic method, the Aristotelian method that he was exposed to in the Organon and those six work that, works that I mentioned, part of what's frustrating about that is some the, the instrument has already made the decisions for you. Right. So you just have to learn the right answers right. and the right process for arriving at the answers. This seems very similar yeah. to me, except we've substituted a linguistic organ for a technological organ right. or a, right. a rational empirical organ, for yeah. example. So you're supposed to encounter the actual world, but if you can do it in a mediated, limited, extended capacity, that's probably good. Because the exactitude with which you can do that is greater. You can draw a straight line with a ruler better, mm -hmm. unless you're extremely skilled, sure, sure. than you can do it freehand. And the same for a circle. But what's missing from this analogy is that you're still left with a human being deciding which line is straighter. Right. The one drawn by hand or the one drawn with the ruler. Right. So it's baked in. It's inextricable. Yeah. So, okay, so given all of that, Bacon's picture of what we're doing as we're trying to replace judgment with instrument, what we're aiming for, do you think that what Bacon is proposing is a workable means to what he's trying to attain? It doesn't strike me as particularly actionable as such. Okay. It seems more like let me give us all permission to take another step okay. 
rather than this is the 12-step program, guys. Yeah, right. You just get this, that, and the other thing. Find a laboratory, you know, get a billion pounds in grant money <laughs> right, right, and right. sit down with your, you know, periodic table and bing, bang, boom, we're going to sort this out. It seems much more like, couldn't we just have permission to take another step here? That's how it strikes me. So how do you think about Bacon's picture of human endeavor and science per se, and how would you critique it? Well, I mean, one critique is how does knowledge accumulation actually work? Humans do all the knowing that is done by humans. So, I mean, this would be Polanyi's personal knowledge. You can't eliminate the knower with the knowledge. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't have knowledge. Right. So that would be one critique I would have. I would say that it's important not to underestimate the role of skill, whether you're using an instrument or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who are incredibly insightful, skilled researchers who use Hadron Colliders, and you could stick me in front of one of them, and I wouldn't know what was going on. But you have people who can look at these sorts of things and interpret very skillfully what the meaning of all of these parts are. So don't lose the personal knowledge. Don't lose the, the skill and experience and interpretive capacity along with well, hey, we just put, we just stuck a piece of technology there so we don't have to think anymore. Or we don't skills as important as ever Mm -hmm. when you put a new tool in the room. So I would say preserve that as well. Do, do you think he's just picked the wrong instrument as we become more sophisticated in our exploration of what are our actual cognitive biases and those sorts of things? Can't you, couldn't you ever just get to a place where you could have a checklist of, well, I've worked through my confirmation bias. This seems to be what modern science hopes to do is we've, we actually have recognized that instrument of the human mind has those tribal tendencies and we've just gotten better and better at sussing out what all of those are is there ever hope of being able to have a method that sorts out all of this stuff i mean it seems to me that i mean i'll just speak from personal experience my experience of myself has at least two pieces one is that i seem to be very complex number two i seem to keep changing which doesn't reduce the level of complexity. Yeah. So if the main problem is observers are complex and have biases and assumptions and theoretical frameworks by which they interpret it, that is either, one can see that as a, as a great gift, a great opportunity, or one can see it as a great liability. Yeah. I don't know how a method would eliminate those two components which come to bear on the nature of interpretation, which is, I have to look at what I've got and decide what I think it means. And then hopefully my spirit is such that I'm open enough to, and humble enough to be critiqued and respond to say, not to land on a skeptic side, but also not to land on a personal dogmatic side. I couldn't possibly be wrong or I couldn't possibly be right. To be open to that middle ground and progress towards something that hopefully resembles the real world, which I think is possible. I think the world is real. I think we can know it. I think we're designed to know it. But being limited, how, how are we going to know it? We're going to know it the same way we love other people, in an imperfect, limited way. So was the problem with Aristotle then his, let's say, method? Or was it his assumptions? If, Or I guess, let me back up. Let me ask this a different way. Do you think... If we removed the content of these two instruments, because the problem with Aristotelianism, as as we've said multiple times, is this dogma attached to the specific results that Mm -hmm. Aristotle got. Yes. But there still seems to be a question, did Aristotle have an instrument that was not trying to remove judgment, or are both Bacon and Aristotle barking up the wrong tree looking for a method or an instrument like that is just the wrong way to go? I read them as two sides of the same coin, and that's the common sense realist coin. Uh 
I mean, what do we have? We have our five senses. We have our rationality that allows us to make sense of our five senses. We have faculties of judgment. We have emotions. We rate and prioritize our experience based on frequency, proximity, intensity, continuity. So, I mean, I think that's what Aristotle's doing. I think that's what Bacon is saying that we should continue to care about. To me, what Aristotle is getting at is he's using language as the primary apparatus, the primary tool by which to help us understand how we're going to talk about these things and what we're looking at. He was a totally hands-on field biologist. He took observations of all sorts of things. And he wrote widely. I mean, he's got a big project, the natural world's as it turns out, not a small place. <laughs> and uh, he had try had a lot of things to say and a lot of, I think, incredibly good insights to say about them. And I think Bacon, in, in a sense, on the other side of that coin saying, you know, yeah, we have, we have to observe and we have to be yeah. disciplined about observing. And we can't just, you know, throw up our hands when we're happy that we've been, you know, validated and say, yep, well, I guess I got that right. You know, time to time to hit the bar. He's saying, you know, we have to keep our head down and keep thinking about what's going on and paying attention to our experiences. Yeah. That's how it seems to me. So there's a great continuity between Aristotle and Bacon, despite Bacon's objections to the contrary. Well, again, the question is, is he objecting to Aristotle or is he objecting to the way that Aristotle is being administered? I see. I see. You know, a biology lecture in a medieval university that you, you would bring in the town barber and you would get some animal and stick it up on the podium and the barber would dissect stuff and hold it up in the air and then the professor, the instructor of medicine would say, look at page 53 in your Aristotle book. See that that red globby thing? It's that. Well, they're not even the same creature, but, you know, I guess that's close enough. One has to ask questions about delivery, and especially in the Middle Ages. I mean, there were so many reforms in medieval education, especially in teaching. And the clergy was like the whole Dominican order arose because the teaching was going off the rails. And uh-huh. you had pastors who couldn't read, and they were uh-huh. telling people what the Bible said and making up this and that, and yeah. it was it was all over the map. Yeah. I have tremendous respect for Aristotle and what he's doing. I don't think he got everything right, but yeah. I mean, the, the thoroughness which, which he, with which he is thinking about it right. is remarkable. Right. So it's not just like, oh, you know, from the 21st century perspective, it's like, oh, you know, I can't believe they believe in spontaneous generation. You know, they must have been so stupid. It's like, well, if you spend some time with these texts, you'll see that, you know, they're sharp as anyone. Right. Most of the time sharper. Yeah. It's very easy to look at the results and be like, oh, like we're far superior. Yeah. I mean, in a thousand years, we'll look like orangutans doing science. Yeah, I wonder if the issue, though, is going back to what you said about that administration. What are we doing when we do science? We judge things. And when you have the barber dissecting stuff and you're like, look, that's what the thing is. That doesn't sound that different from a dissecting class in a high school today. And are they doing science? I mean, maybe the problem isn't if you look at Aristotle and you go, he got things wrong. So he had nothing to say. And possibly the same thing of Francis Bacon. You go, you know, he aspired to have the empire of the universe, whatever that means. If you think that you can reduce human endeavor to a methodology that takes the humanity out of it, then you're going to have a very reduced picture of all of it. You're going to throw the Aristotle out with the bathwater And it seems like, yes, we think that our picture now of physics, biology, etc. is much more accurate than Aristotle. But that's not because he was bad scientists. It was because, you know, what he had to work with, whether that was his own personal quirks, (laughs) whether that was these things that Bacon is identifying, those things can lead to mixed results, even if the man himself is doing as admirable of a job as you could even expect, or maybe even better than what you could expect. Certainly, certainly. And to Bacon's point, this is a question I wish I could ask him, which is in the 21st century, these idols are alive and well in professional research. Right. I mean, there are the right ways and the allowable things that you can talk about and the way you can ask and formulate questions and things that the National Science Foundation is willing to pay for. 
and things that they're not. Is this the objective, unbiased inquiry into what is true about any and all things? Well, no, of course not. It's directed in certain avenues and for certain reasons. And I'm not saying those are bad reasons or good reasons, but it's not as if there is a totally value-free experience of scientific research and peer-reviewed articles. Because if you read a bunch of articles, what you'll find out is scientists disagree about a lot of things. Right. I mean, which is where the coon comes in. It's like, well, which, which theoretical framework are we going with at the present moment? And how do we decide if it's a good framework or a flawed framework? Or what does it account for? Or how does it deal with anomalies? And this stuff is wildly complex. And I mean, I'm not here to write the ship or say I've got the answers because I don't. But it's certainly a lot more complicated than, you know, the ancients don't know what they're doing. And the moderns were just barreling toward total knowledge and progress. Right. I think it's a little more complicated. Well, I think Bacon would probably want us to continue to inquire about whatever it was that we were pursuing. Maybe we'll get back around to Bacon in a couple of years and we'll have new data or maybe even a new paradigm to see what he's about but i think excited about <laughs> what we're doing here but in any case Elliot, i think this has been a pretty good conversation it's an interesting introduction into bacon and some of the issues attending him and tying in not planned to our discussion of the science curriculum but that's great so thank you for coming on and talking about bacon yeah thanks for having me it's been a pleasure we will be back in a little while to continue discussing the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College.